Our passage for this morning is taken from Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God." And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we come to this final Sunday in the season of Advent, I think it is good for us to take a moment and to pause to remember the purpose of the Advent season. You see, while the the celebration of Christmas is meant to be a time of joy and of feasting, we tend to forget that the season of Advent is meant to be a time of reflection, of preparation, and even anticipation. And I think one of the best ways that we can engage with the purpose of the Advent season, as we've experienced so often this morning, is through music. And one of the best Advent hymns, in my opinion, is the song that we heard played instrumentally at the top of this worship service, and that is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. You're familiar with the lyrics, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom Captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. I think the strength of this particular hymn is that it does a really great job of aligning our hearts with those who heard the message of Christ's birth first and foremost. You see, The message of Christ's birth was not delivered first to those who sat comfortably in their own nation. It was delivered to those who were regrettably living under the the bitter oppression of God's enemies, to people who were living in exile. And whether or not we realize that we too are people in exile, You know, as we read last week in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God in the garden, it says that they were removed from God's presence, that they were exiled from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. And what this means is that you and I, we live in a world that is not only marred by sin and brokenness, but a world that is longing to return from exile. And so it is only when we acknowledge this, when we acknowledge that we are people living in exile, that we will be able to understand the true significance of Christ's birth, significance that God reveals here in the book of Micah. And so as we turn to the book of Micah this morning and consider what is it like to actually hear the promises of God as people living in exile, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together as your people this morning. 
We thank you for this portion of your word, how you have preserved it down to this very day, and how you have fulfilled it in and through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now, as we come to this portion of your word, to have soft hearts, believing hearts, that by your spirit you would illuminate us and give us ears to hear this message as who we truly are, those living in exile, awaiting your return, and looking to your promises with hope and anticipation. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what does it actually mean to live as one who is living in exile? Well, I think our our passage this morning shows that first and foremost, those who are living in exile are those who know that they need to be rescued. I want you to notice here in verse 1 how the prophet Micah is calling God's people to battle, to defend the nation of Israel from attack. It says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. The image here is of a battle not waiting to be waged, but that a battle that is already raging. But sadly, this battle that Israel is being called into is not going to result in Israel's victory. It is going to result in their defeat. You see, Micah was a prophet who spoke on God's behalf to the kingdoms of Israel in the years leading up to a massive invasion by the kingdom of Assyria. And this invasion would ravage the southern kingdom of Judah, and it would completely destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and it would lead to the northern kingdom's exile in 722 BC. And all throughout Micah, God is revealing to Israel that their defeat and their subsequent exile is not a reflection of God's weakness or God's unfaithfulness, but it is the consequence of Israel's sin. You see that all throughout the book of Kings, Israel, instead of following after the Lord, they turned away from the Lord and to the practices of the nations around them. They worshipped other gods. They even adopted evil practices of the nation around them. These practices not only broke God's law, but they oppressed some of the most vulnerable people in the nation of Israel. And so God declared in the book of Micah and throughout the prophets that he would judge Israel for their sin, that he would remove them from the promised land and that he would scatter them among the nations. Israel would be defeated in this battle, and they would know that they were a people in need of rescue. But the question remains, do we know that we need to be rescued? Do we understand that the brokenness and the misery that we experience in our world or in our lives is not simply the result of chaos or the result of chance? It is the mark of sin in our world. I'm reminded of a song uh, by Amy Grant that is entitled Grown Up Christmas List. Some of you may be familiar with this song. And in this song, the singer Amy Grant lists off what she wishes for Christmas now that she is all grown up and no longer asking for things like teddy bears or bikes. And here's what she sings. She says, I wish that there would be no more lives torn apart that wars would never start and time would heal our hearts, that everyone would have a friend, that right would always win, and that love would never end. 
But do we understand, as Amy Grant is looking out into this broken world, as we're considering the reality of our own exile, that it's not just about the sins out there that are breaking the world, it is the sin in our own heart. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All of us need to be rescued. And while it may be difficult for us to wrestle with this reality, it actually prepares us for God's promises in this passage. Because God looks at those in exile for their sin, and he tells them, I will not abandon you. I will send someone to rescue you. And we see God promising this in verses 2 and 3, where God in verse 3 reveals that it would be after the time of exile that this king of Israel would be born. And these are promises that we are all very, very familiar with. But in verse 2, God says that this king's birth would be from of old, from ancient days. This is another way of saying that when this king is born, it will be in fulfillment of everything that God had promised his people. And we're supposed to be thinking of promises that God made to Abraham, promises that God made to David, promises that God made to Adam and to Eve. This is no ordinary king that God is promising to his people. This is the king, the Messiah. But God also gives his people in this passage very specific details about this king, which is very encouraging if you consider that as the nation of Israel is going into exile, God provides them these things to hang their hopes on, to look forward to generation after generation. In verse 2, God says that this promised king would be born in the city of of David in Bethlehem, and that most importantly, that this king's birth would mean their rescue. This is what it means at the end of verse 3 when it says, After the time of giving them up, after she who is in labor has given birth, it says, Then the rest of his brothers shall return. Israel was in exile for their sin. And so what this meant was not only that God would bring rescue from their enemies, but that ultimately what this meant is that God would rescue them from their sin. This is what we hear the Apostle Paul talking about in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when he says, God has delivered us through Christ from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It wouldn't simply be enough to deliver God's people and to rescue them from their enemies. Because if Israel continued to fall into sin, if their sin could not be fully forgiven, if they could not be fully redeemed, they would simply fall back into the arms of their enemies once again. God is sending his king to those in exile who know that they need to be rescued not just from their enemies, but from their sin. And a man, I think, who understood this really well is a man by the name of Simeon. Some of you may be familiar with Simeon. He's a person in the New Testament who 
It says in Luke chapter 2 that he was a righteous and a devout man who was spending much of his time in and around the temple waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple as was according to God's law, it says that Simeon took up the child in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Simeon was a man who understood he lived in exile, that he was a man waiting for the consolation of Israel, for their rescue from their enemies, and most importantly, their rescue from their sin. And it's because Simeon understood that he was a man in exile that he was able to respond to the news of Christ's birth with a deep and abiding joy. But exiles don't simply know that they need to be rescued. This passage also reveals that exiles know that they need reconciliation. I want you guys to remember here that by the time of Micah, the kingdoms of Israel were well acquainted with division. In fact, nearly 200 years before the prophecies of Micah, Israel was one united kingdom under King David and after him, his son Solomon. But it was during Solomon's son Rehoboam's reign that seeds of division were sown and that this kingdom of Israel was split. Ten tribes to the north and two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to the south. And while at times these two kingdoms, which were at odds with one another, they at some points would work together, most of the time these kingdoms were marked by civil war and by struggle between each other. These prophecies that we see in Micah are coming to two factions, as it were, in Israel. Israel was deeply acquainted with division. But it wasn't simply within Israel that division was obvious to the people of God. As Israel looked out among the nations and they saw kingdoms like Assyria and later on Babylon completely destroying the tiny kingdoms and tribes around them, they were well acquainted with the fact that our world is broken at a deep level and in need of reconciliation. Now, We don't need to look to the scriptures per se to know this. Whether we're thinking about Ukraine or Iran or our own city and the struggles of violence in our own neighborhoods, even in our own families, we know that our world is in short supply of unity and is in desperate need of reconciliation. And here's the kicker. Even though everybody knows this, knows how divided we really are, how broken our relationships seem to be, despite all of our best intentions, despite all of our intense efforts, whether that's personal, local, nationally or internationally, we can't seem to create that unity or that peace that we long for or that we desire. And yet God here in Micah promises to a polarized and a divided world that Christ's birth would mean 
and bring unity and peace beyond anything that we could hope for or imagine. I want you to notice this in verses 3 and 4, how this unity and peace is explained by the Lord. You see, the first way that it's expressed is in the description of Israel as they're being described in their return from exile. I want you to notice that it says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. I want you to notice that the nation here is being described as the people of Israel. Okay? That is very significant because God is not saying to those about to leave to go to exile that he will restore the kingdom of Judah or that he will restore the northern kingdom of Israel. He is saying, I will restore the people of Israel as one nation. And even more than that, I want you to notice how this people of Israel are actually united by this common thread, and it is the words, his brothers. The birth of this king of Israel will unite again these broken and divided tribes into one people again, into one kingdom But what's more amazing is if you look at verse 4, this promise of peace extends beyond the borders of Israel. I want you to notice in verse 4 that the reign of this king that is to be born in Bethlehem is said to be great to the ends of the earth, and that he shall be their peace. Grammatically, it is important for you to understand that the word there, that pronoun, is not pointing back to Israel. It is pointing back to the whole world. This is echoed earlier, actually, in Micah chapter 4, verse 3, where it says that at the time of God fulfilling his promises, the temple would be elevated once more and that the nations would be flowing and streaming to God's temple. And it says, and he, that is God, shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The birth of Christ is just simply the very beginning of this promise being fulfilled that ultimately we see fulfilled in Revelation that when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom forevermore, that all the nations will not only flow to him, but will be judged and will be ruled by him, bringing peace. And it is echoed by the coming of the three wise men. Excuse me. You remember that the wise men are not from the nation of Israel. The wise men in Matthew chapter 2 are three men who travel, it says, from the east. And that they come to the passel of Herod and they say, we have come to worship he who is to be born king of the Jews. These wise men understood that with the birth of Christ, there was a unity and a worldwide peace that was simply dawning that they wanted to see and they wanted to participate in. And what is fascinating about that particular story of the wise men coming to Herod is that when they ask Herod, where is this king to be born? 
Herod knows, and he calls the scribes, and they tell him this exact prophecy from the book of Micah. They say that that king that you have come to see, O men of the east, is to be born in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. The apostle Paul echoes this in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says about Christ, Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so as we enter a season where for many of us we experience tension and division in our families, despite all of our best efforts, these promises of the peace and the unity of Christ being made available because of Christ's birth Elsewhere in scripture, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Where our world is filled with hostility, Christ's birth, and especially his death and his resurrection, means that there is a new kind of unity that is open. A unity which comes through the reconciliation that Christ extends to us. So that through him, we can extend reconciliation to others. This leads to the final aspect of what it means to live as an exile. Not simply as those who know they need to be rescued and those who need to be reconciled, but those who recognize that they need to be ruled by a perfect king. And we see this in verses 4 and in verse 5. But to understand what's being said here, we need to understand That to be a king in Israel in the Old Testament was not the same thing as being the president, okay? Israel's kings were not selected by the people. They were appointed by God. And as such, they were held accountable and evaluated by God. And as was promised in the book of Deuteronomy, when Israel's kings kept the law and they led God's people according to God's wisdom... Those people were blessed. But when Israel's kings turned away from the Lord and they broke God's law and led Israel to do the same, they were promised curses. And so we need to understand this, that the fate of of Israel's nation was hitched to the faithfulness of Israel's king. And this is why a perfect king not only meant a perfect kingdom in the sense that justice would be established and that rule would be done well, but a perfect king, a perfectly faithful king, meant a forever kingdom. That God would continue the line of those kings as long as they were faithful. Now, none of the kings in the Old Testament were. There were some good kings, But by and large, what we see is that the kings of Israel led the people of Israel astray. But I want you to notice here in verse 4 what God is promising his people. While the kings of Israel had led the people astray and into exile because of their unfaithfulness, now with the birth of this king, of the Messiah, God would be sending a king who would stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 
There are so many allusions to King David in this particular passage of a king who has been anointed and appointed and established by God himself to rule God's kingdom perfectly on God's behalf. Perfect justice, perfect righteousness in this king, which means that his kingdom will extend forever. That is an amazing promise that God is giving his people. And it is precisely what God has done in and through Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus is not only involved in the genealogy of the the sons of David so that he is a legitimate king, but when the angel speaks to Mary, he says, Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. As we look out into our world and we see war-torn, divided nations, the gospel of Christ's birth declares to us there is a perfect king. There is a perfect king kingdom, and that through faith in this Messiah, we can be drawn into this perfect kingdom. As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. But this is something I think we need to wrestle with. Not everybody likes the message of Christmas. You think of characters like Ebenezer Scrooge. You think of characters like the Grinch. You think of characters like King Herod. King Herod heard the message of his rescue, the message of his reconciliation, the message of a perfect king come to rule God's people, and he rejected that message. But why did Herod reject that message? What we need to understand is that Herod did not see himself in exile. Herod saw himself comfortably living the life that he wanted to live. Herod saw himself comfortably situated in the nation of Israel with all the power and with all the prestige that he could stomach. He did not like the message of Christ's birth because he saw it as an imposition on his own kingdom. As Paul David Tripp once pointed out, the greatest threat to the kingdom of God in our lives is the kingdom of self. That we will be kept from rejoicing as deeply as we ought at the news of Christ's birth this Christmas if we are more concerned about establishing our own kingdoms than seeking God's. If we are more concerned with establishing our goodness than receiving his, more interested in making our own way than receiving his rescue. There's a hymn that we sing here. One of the lines is, Rejoice, the Lord is king. And the season of Advent is a season for exiles. And so we have an opportunity this last week in the season of Advent 
and by God's grace that we would actually hear the gospel message, hear the promise of this coming king born in the little town of Bethlehem, born to rescue, born to reconcile, and born to rule, that we would hear this message and trust in him so that through him we would receive the forgiveness that we know we need, that we would experience the unity that we know we need, and that we would receive an unshakable kingdom that we know we long for. And so as we enter this final week in Advent, may our hearts as exiles be prepared. May we be those who anticipate the coming of Christ because of what it means for us as exiles and those who need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this portion of your word and fulfilling it in and through the birth of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us not to elevate our own kingdoms against yours and against Christ, but to humbly submit to the wonderful news, Lord Jesus, that you are king and that your peace will extend through your people throughout the entire world. Help us to rejoice in the forgiveness and the unity and the peace that come through you alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.